Good morning, everyone, and Happy New Year. Uh, for those of you who maybe be just visiting today or are new here, my name is Jake, and I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar. Uh, and we're going to be resuming our series in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we started this series back in the fall, and we've been working our way through the book chapter by chapter. We took a, a brief kind of four-week break for the Christmas season where we got to go through an uh, awesome series looking at the different offices of Christ that we see laid out uh, in Scripture. But now as we go into the new year, we are back resuming our series here in Ecclesiastes. So I encourage you, if you have your Bibles or your phones with you, pull those out, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be picking up where we left off back in November, which is going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 13 is where we're going to pick up today. And we're going to end up reading all the way through the end of chapter 10. So we're going to finish 9 and go all the way through 10. While you are turning your Bibles there, uh, there's a couple of people that are here today that I want to take this opportunity to recognize. Uh, some of you may not know this, but for the past uh, few months, we've had a couple different interns or assistants on staff here at Pillar that have played a critical role behind the scenes, making everything that happens here at Pillar go on. Uh, and both of them are ending their time with us. Uh, one of them back in uh, my left, your right, Olivia Heim, she wrapped up her last week with us last week. She served as our children's ministry intern. She did a great job supporting Lydia behind the scenes, making sure things on Sunday morning ran smoothly and that your children were taken care of well. So Lydia, thank you for all of your work uh, and for everything that you've done over the past few months. And then uh, also Chapman Pugh, right, uh, who if you don't know Chapman, you are really missing out. Uh, he's incredibly talented, and he's been a huge blessing to our church, to me personally, as I've transitioned into the role. I started here at Pillar right around the same time that Chapman came on as our intern, and he has been a pretty much constant companion in the office with me day after day, week after week. He's just a sounding board, someone to bounce ideas off of and just be able to tell him that I'm completely lost and I don't know what I should be doing, uh, and he helps provide me some of that direction. And so uh, Chapman's going to be moving on. He's got some exciting plans for the future. I'll let him fill you in more on what those are, um, but just wanted to take a second to recognize Chapman and say thank you for all the work that you've done to support Pillar over the past few months. So with that, hopefully you've got your Bibles open to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, I'm going to pick up reading in chapter 9, starting in verse 13, which reads, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. 
folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the root sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Now, for some of you who might be joining us for the first time or just in town visiting for the holidays, and even for those of you who have been with us throughout this series, I want to provide you just a, a brief update or kind of synopsis of what we have covered in the book of Ecclesiastes thus far. Now, Ecclesiastes is a book that is generally focused on this idea of how we are to live in the world while dealing with the realities of the broken world that we find ourselves in. This broken world, the author commonly refers to using the phrase under the sun, really just describing the existence that we find ourselves in. And he's really wrestling with how do we live well within the reality of this broken world that we face. Now, Ecclesiastes is also considered a piece of wisdom literature, which means that it's primarily concerned with providing kind of general principles for how we can live well during our time here on this earth. And as we've seen so far through the book, there are several distinct qualities that kind of set Ecclesiastes aside from other wisdom literature or that generally characterize what we see throughout the book. What we've seen so far through these first 10 chapters is that Ecclesiastes is all about what it looks like to grab hold of kind of this nebulous idea that the author refers to as gain. Now this idea is really just the thing that it is that we seek after that's going to be of lasting value or substance in this life. It's that thing that we all desire that's going to provide us meaning, fulfillment, lasting joy and happiness that's going to go beyond just our time living here on this earth under the sun. And what the book of Ecclesiastes does is it's going to examine all of the different ways or tools that we use to try to grab hold of this gain. And ultimately, the author continues to come back to the same conclusion over and over and over again. And that is that the means by which we try to grab hold of this gain or this substantive thing that we all desire here under the sun, they are all ultimately going to prove to be just a vapor. 
They might provide satisfaction or joy or gain for a very short period of time, but as time continues to pass and we see the end of our life come before us, that we suddenly realize that that thing that we thought was substantive, that we were able to grab hold of, that provided that gain that we sought, was really nothing but a vapor that is going to slip through our fingers. The author describes this using the word hevel, which we see throughout the book, and we've discussed being like this smoke or vapor-like quality. Something that seems to have true substance, but when we reach out for it, it turns out it was never really there. Secondly, Ecclesiastes strives to help us to live well in the world, not as we think it should be, but in the world as it really is. Some of the other books of wisdom literature, like Proverbs, while they offer wise pieces of advice that we should heed and listen to, often they are found... uh, framed kind of within this perfect world. Their wisdom in a vacuum, if you will, saying that the world should work this way so that if you apply wisdom, you will always get a good outcome. But what Ecclesiastes does is say, yeah, if you apply wisdom, it's generally going to work out well, but it doesn't always. We all have experiences that point to the fact that there are people that are righteous, that live wisely, and yet they still suffer injustices that we often have a hard time wrapping our minds around or reconciling with the reality of how we think the world should work. So far in the series, we've talked about topics like injustice, the inevitability of death, the prospering of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous, and several other difficult topics with the author's goal being to help us understand how we are to deal with these realities during our time here on the earth under the sun. And ultimately, what we've seen time and time again is that the difficult reality that Ecclesiastes points us to is that the brokenness that we experience here on this earth is actually a result of the curse that has been placed on the world as a result of sin and is actually a gracious act of God intended to point us toward our need for him. We see throughout the book, the author points to the fact that we cannot make straight that which God himself has made crooked, pointing us to this idea that God has this overarching plan, and he has actually made the world, even with its injustices, to exist the way it does for a specific reason, and that is to guide us back toward our need for him. Thirdly, we've seen that Ecclesiastes is generally focused on stripping away all of the hevel or these vapor-like tools that we use to try to grab hold of gain. One way that I heard another pastor talk about this uh, is he said that the book of Ecclesiastes functions much in the same way that a gardener would function if they were trying to plant a garden uh, on like wild ground. So I want you to imagine if you've ever spent any time out in the forest of Quantico or uh, as my fellow Marines like to refer to it as the tree line, right? You go out there and you want to plant a, f- uh, a garden out there. You want to plant plants that are going to bring forth fruit, that are going to bring forth life, that bring forth these things that you desire that are good things. But when you go out there into the tree line, into the forest, what are you going to find? Well, you're going to find other plants. You're going to find trees, weeds vines, pretty much everything in Quantico has some sort of thorn on it and is trying to kill you, right? There's going to be a lot of leaves on the ground from all of our fall weather that we have out here. Pine needles, the trees themselves are going to block out the valuable sunlight that those plants that you desire to have plant and grow and flourish need in order to survive. 
So if you want to plant this garden out there in the tree line, the first thing that you're going to have to do is rip out all of those harmful things that threaten to take away the life of these fruitful plants that you desire to bring forth. Well, in the same way, the book of Ecclesiastes is going into our life and it is pulling out all of those harmful ideas or tools or weeds in our life. All of those things that we use to try to grab hold of gain that the author says are ultimately going to turn into just a vapor and are not truly going to satisfy us. Because until we rip out all of these false hopes that we have in our life, then the truth of the gospel and the good news and the life that it hopes to bring forth is never going to be able to fully take root. And so that's what we see the author doing. They've talked about ideas like wealth and possessions, like food and drink. Uh, we've seen the author talk about his accumulation of wives and lovers, and ultimately he's concluded that none of these bring the satisfaction that he desires to have. And so he's slowly stripping away all of these things in our life that we look to to provide the substantive gain, but that are ultimately going to let us down. So as we've been kind of on this journey through Ecclesiastes, that brings us to the passage that we just read today. And I think this is a really fitting passage based upon the occasion that we find ourselves on here on New Year's Eve. A specific day that we have set aside to celebrate as we look toward the future, the precipice of the new year and all of the hope and potential that this next year holds. Many of us, as we go into this next year, are going to make resolutions or set goals for what we want this next year to look like. And as we look at these resolutions, ultimately what these are is they're just an expression of a goal to in some way live in what we might consider to be a more wise manner. Now the word wisdom can have several different meanings or definitions which are determined by the context that we find it in throughout scripture. But here we see wisdom being used in a way that points to or means living in a way that is more in alignment with God's creative order and redemptive plan. You see, the author here, Solomon, believes in a creator God. So his logic naturally flows that if God created all of this life that we experience here under the sun, then if we align our lives more closely with the way that he intended this existence to work, the way that he intended creation to operate within the world he created, then it should yield favorable results. The more in line we are with God's plan, then the more we're going to be able to reap the benefits of it. And ultimately, is that not what we're trying to do through our New Year's resolutions? We're trying to take the wisdom that we see exhibited elsewhere in the world, and we're trying to align our lives with it in order to reap the benefits that it has to offer. Now, we can kind of put these resolutions or these hopes to it that we uh, want to achieve through wiser living into kind of three general categories. The first is that a lot of us are going to make resolutions going into this new year that we hope are going to bring us to the point where we can achieve more success, right? For you, it may be, may be that you're going to work harder in this new year, that you're going to study, you're going to commit yourself to this goal, you're going to save money, whatever it is with the hope of achieving more success in whatever way you define that going forward into the future. Secondly, a lot of us, and I would say this is actually the majority of our New Year's resolutions, are really, if you boil them down to their very essence, they are a resolution to help us avoid death. 
whether it's I'm going to eat better in the new year, I'm going to work out more, I'm going to drink more water, get more sleep, whatever it is for you, all of these are really uh, ideas or things that we are implementing into our life to in some way try to slow down the inevitable movement toward death that we all face within our lives. And then finally, the last kind of bucket or category that we can put our resolutions into is that we just want to experience more prosperity. We want to enjoy all that this life has to offer in a greater way. Maybe that means that we're going to finally take that vacation that we've been saying that we were going to do. Maybe for you, it means that you're actually going to use the vacation days that your business offers you that you just see go away every year because you can't carry them into the new year. Maybe it means you're just going to slow down and try to spend more time with family and friends. But in some way, you're going to try to experience greater prosperity, more of the good things that this life has to offer. And what the teacher desires to show us in the passage that we read today is that while wisdom is valuable and is something to be sought, it cannot guarantee for us any of the things that we put into these new resolutions. Wisdom isn't going to be able to guarantee that we achieve success It's not going to be able to guarantee that any of us avoid death in this new year. And it can't guarantee that we are going to experience prosperity. Now, the way that the author is going to show us this is that he's going to break down this passage beginning with a story that illustrates kind of his main point. And then he's going to give us three proverbs which kind of build upon or expand this point a little bit more. Then from there, he's just going to get really practical, and he's going to give us three areas where he's going to demonstrate to us both the power that wisdom has in that area of our life, while also showing us its inability to guarantee the true gain that we seek due to the limitations that are placed on wisdom's power by by the presence of our foolishness and sin. And ultimately, the main idea that this passage is going to point us to is that we are to pursue wise living while recognizing wisdom's limited power. Now, as you turn to your scripture, we see this more prominently in verses 9, 13, all the way through 10, 3. Starting in 9, 13, going through verse 15, we get this little story that the author tells us about this wise but poor man. We see that he's part of this kingdom, and we see this kingdom uh, and the king that is besieging it with his great works and they being a great king, juxtaposed to this poor but wise man. And what we see is that the man's wisdom actually does allow him to overcome this great king and the great siege works that uh, seek to threaten the city. And ultimately, the author gives us, uh, in verses 16 through 18, a couple reflections to what he thinks we can take away or he desires for us to learn from this story. First, he points out to us that even if people or despise or ignore the owner of wisdom, the wisdom itself still has power. We can see this right here uh, in verse 15, saying, But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom and despised and his words are not heard. So even though nobody appreciated the poor man, though nobody wanted to listen to what he had to say, that didn't change the fact that the wisdom that he displayed still had very real power that allowed him and the city to be able to overcome this great threat that threatened the city that he was in. 
We then see the author continue on in verses 17 through 18 to make more observations about the story, ultimately pointing us to the fact Uh, As we see in verse 18, that wisdom itself, once again illustrating its power, is actually better than weapons of war. So we see the author doubling down on his claim that there is power to be gained through wisdom. But then at the uh, end of verse 18, and then as we continue on into chapter 10, verse 1, we see that the author kind of tempers or qualifies his statement. While he says that wisdom is better than weapons of war, he says that it's also limited. Because one sinner can destroy much good. Or as we see in this word picture that we have in chapter 10, verse 1, we see that just a few dead flies can change the very nature of this beautiful, rich ointment, this perfume that the author talks about. Now this shocking word picture is meant to help us understand the relationship that exists between sin or folly and foolishness and wisdom. And that relationship is ultimately that wisdom is a good thing. We've seen it described as powerful, better than weapons of war, able to deliver a city. We see it here compared to this perfume, something that gives off this beautiful aroma of life. But we also see that its power is limited by the presence of sin and foolishness. We see that just a very small amount, a very small presence of sin and foolishness can destroy all of the value that wisdom has. Here in the word picture that we are given, we see that this thing that is supposed to give off this great, beautiful aroma of life is instead transformed into the opposite of what it was intended to be by just a few dead flies being taken from something that is beautiful and smelling good to something that reeks of death. Now, while there's a lot more to get through in this passage, I think it's important for us to stop here and appreciate what the author is truly trying to tell us through this word picture that he paints for us as we look forward to this new year. The warning that the author is giving us is that regardless of our efforts to live in a wise way in the new year, if we are not careful to pay attention to the areas of our life where we continue to pursue foolishness or folly, things that we know are sinful, that are harmful for us, yet we don't truly believe in their power to destroy our life, what we are quickly going to find is that the things that we thought were intended for good that we're going to bring into our life this beautiful aroma are ultimately going to show that our life gives off nothing but the stench of death. Here we have a picture of the corrupting and polluting power that sin can have in every single one of our lives. I'm sure all of us can think about things in our life or the life that we have seen of those around us that initially seemed like small, insignificant things but over time grew and grew and grew until it overwhelmed all of the good that we thought it was going to bring into our life. Whether this is a relationship that we knew was potentially unwise, but that we thought couldn't really damage us, but then as that relationship grew, we saw the ruining effects it could have on our life. Maybe it was the temporary pursuit of money or success that we've seen 